0: And they wonder why those of us in our 20s refuse to work an
1: 80-hour week just so we can afford to buy their BMWs. Why we aren't interested in the counterculture that they invented, as if we did not see them disembowel their revolution for a pair of running shoes. But the question remains, what are we going to do now? How can we repair all the damage we inherited? Fellow graduates, The answer is simple. The answer is, the answer is, I don't know.
2: Hey, everyone. We're back. It's Hit Factory. Aaron's here.
3: Carly's here.
2: And uh, we have a very exciting guest joining us today. Uh, she is a reporting fellow at the Tite Media Center and author of an excellent uh, new book called Work Won't Love You Back. How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Uh, we are pleased to welcome Sarah Jaffe to the show. Sarah, thanks so much for being here.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Uh,
2: And today we are talking about a seminal work of 90s slacker culture. So
1: seminal. (laughs) Um,
3: The
2: best. It is Reality Bites, um, directed by Ben Stiller and starring some of your 90s faves, I'm sure Ethan Hawke, (laughs) Wynona Ryder, Janine Garofalo, Steve Zahn. (laughs) Um, This is just chock full of great 90s actors, still working today, all of them. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, yeah, I just love all of them. Yeah, all it's like
3: the, the second Brat Pack.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> God, people. it really is, isn't it? It mm-hmm. is.
2: Uh, but, Sarah, I guess to get started, I am curious, uh, because this was a film that you suggested that we discuss. Was, yeah. I want to know about your history with Reality Bites, oh uh, where you were when you first came to it, and maybe how you've evolved in terms of your perception of the film uh, upon the most recent watch.
1: So my first memory of this movie actually is, um, I grew up outside of Boston and my friends and I had these little notebooks that we would pass around and do like pages in each other's notebooks. And I remember one friend just like covering hers with Reality Bites quotes, like the meaningless ones, like we're going to eat gas. Um, I have like this very (laughs) strong visual memory of this page in front of me with all of the stuff. So I must have seen it then. I probably did not see it in the theater because um, I would have been 14 when it came out. And um, so it was probably like a year or so later on video somewhere. And yeah, so I remember this being like a very important sort of touchstone for my particular sort of weirdo friends. And then a couple years later when I was like 18... Um, I had a boyfriend who I watched it with who like then decided that he was actually the Ben Stiller character and his Ah. other friend was the Ethan Hawke character. And that meant that I was actually going to leave him for our other friend. Uh, Scandal. It was was a very complicated relationship. Um, Very complicated. He probably doesn't remember any of this, although I should ask him because we're still in touch. He's a lovely person. Uh, Yeah. And, and I, those times, obviously, like I was not thinking that much about the work aspect of it. I was thinking much more about like, oh, isn't it so romantic and also mm-hmm. really messy. And I expect, I, I'm i sure I've watched it in between like being 18 and being 41, but then like thinking about it when, when you guys reached out to me about doing the podcast and, and you asked about, um, what was it, office space, which I just don't have any relationship to. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I could probably watch that and talk about it. But like, if you haven't done this or this, like, I actually feel like those are really movies about work and about our relationship to like caring about work that is sort of much closer to what I was writing about in in Work Won't Love You Back, which is like this sort of draw of, of creative labor and and finding your purpose in your job and all of this stuff. And um, yeah, and then I went back and rewatched it like three weeks ago and filled like notebook pages with notes and then just rewatched it again today before we recorded because like, why not? I love this movie. Oh
4: my gosh. <laughs> it's
3: so, so perfect for Putting this in conversation. The not yeah. just for your book, but also like, given the sort of arc of neoliberalism since the movie first came onto the scene i think that's one of the reasons we love talking about films of the 90s because there's so much like foundational architecture that you can find in them and then when you revisit them you know in the late stages of capitalism circa 2020 2021 it's like they have that much more potency And I definitely felt that with this film when I came back to it.
1: Yeah. Oh, now I really just want to make like an arc of films of neoliberalism with like, you know, obviously nine to five as like Mm -hmm. early Reaganism, right? Um, And then moving on through the 80s and the 90s and then to like now where like the movies are just, well, I mean. The movies are all Marvel movies, but the ones yeah. those are actually also movies about work, which is another yep. topic. But yes, they are definitely workplace films as well. That's my hot take on Marvel movies. <laughs> um, yeah, but re- you see this tension right between like the sort of quintessential '90s slacker character Ethan mm-hmm. Hawke and the sort of Janine Garofalo, who's like the the kooky girl who like has the boring retail job. Um, that is sort of looked down upon even though she's actually like the stable person holding this friend group of, of neurotics together. Um, and then we never find out what, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. Steve Zahn's character. What is his name? Michael. Uh, Sammy. Sammy. No. Yes. No,
3: just kidding. We never
1: find out what Sammy does. <laughs> does Sammy have a job? It's an interesting question. I don't know.
2: Yeah. We know that Independently he's Independently wealthy. We know, yeah. he's gay we, know he's we know that
1: he's gay and we know that he's celibate. We know that he's gay. We know that he's celibate. We know that he doesn't live in the house, but he's always there and we have no idea what he does for a living if he does anything which is also probably meaningful in some way to the shape of this movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then of course in comes Ben Stiller in his ridiculous sports car. Is it a, is it a Saab? It's a Saab, isn't it? Which it's is like a such sob. a 90s Definitely yuppie a car. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, and Ben Stiller who we are never given an explanation for how he became this like TV executive in his like late 20s and also somehow like dropped out of school or something and yeah it's just like the perfect and of course Ben Stiller made the movie and then gave himself this character which like makes me love Ben Stiller (laughs) a whole lot yeah making himself the foil for this like romantic and also work related thing and of course like his relationship with Winona Ryder hinges on her work
3: Mm -hmm.
4: And
1: his inability to understand her work and the meaning of her work. He just wants to give her money for it because he thinks that that's good and that will make her happy. Completely.
2: Yeah. And gives her, you know, puts out a very corporatized, commodified version of that thing, right? Bastardizes the work.
1: Yeah. Which they're clearly making fun of MTV, right? It's like real programming
3: totally i was actually like when we were watching this again i was like okay so the first real world i i remember aired in 1992 right and the second one which took place the first one took place in new york the second one very famously took place in san francisco and had a gay character right And, and by the time that i think this movie came out um they were sort of like coalescing into you know the, the sort of pop cultural ether at mm-hmm. the same time yeah. and so it was interesting to me to see also like a lot of the character tropes that we found in the real world cast mm-hmm. show up also in yeah. in the movie and and w- I also had this thought when when and we're diving very specifically in mm-hmm. but I will just say <laughs> this and then yeah then what we'll, we'll uh we'll re-navigate but the the note I wrote down when they premiere Winona's piece at right. this screening party is yeah. what they made it, is reality bites like right. the it's it's this I had it, this, is the
2: real world you mean
3: no is the movie oh yes reality bites. yes they made like, the
2: movie in the movie
3: no right. but <laughs> what I'm saying is the thing they present to us is the I had this moment of like I am watching the like corporate studio media version of like a packaged slacker story Mm -hmm. like in the form of the movie starring winona ryder and ethan hawk reality bites and they're showing us this like you know this thing that was churned out that's supposed to be a point of derision it was a it was a strange moment of Mm -hmm. of clarity for me which we can come back to because there's a lot there in terms of like how slacker culture was co-opted
1: right and the way that they're they're layers of self-reference right going on Mm -hmm. there with like again with ben stiller being the filmmaker and also being this character that is like this yuppie tv guy and and yeah it's it's very meta it's very 90s um yeah i just like i expected going back to it to have no patience for troy at all Uh the Ethan Hawke character, right? I expected like, okay, I'm now a grown-ass woman. Like, I'm not going to romanticize this guy anymore. I actually love him more. Say more about that. I actually like his little speech where she's Mm -hmm. like, if you want to be in a band, then be in a band. Like, I actually, I find her really (laughs) annoying looking back on this. I'm just like, I want to murder her. Why do all these people put up with her? Um, Totally agree. And I would probably murder him too. But as Janine Garofalo, like where she's like, he's terrible, he's a total whatever, I can't believe I haven't slept with him yet. I'm just like, <laughs>
4: yeah.
1: it me.
3: hit uh, me. <laughs> I, That's it Ethan Hawke's draw, man. Yeah. yeah, I
2: think that that there are <laughs> many women who agree with this particular sentiment. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. no, and, and Ethan Hawke is also kind of playing himself, right? He's yeah. like that guy, and he continues to be that guy who's like written novels that are thinly veiled versions of his life, but I will love him forever for having produced and starred in good lord bird about john brown which is so good and is not 90s at all but is a thing that everybody who is listening to this should watch it's great anyway back to the speech where she's like yelling at him to like if you're gonna be in a band then be in a band like do Mm -hmm. something and this is of course while she's unemployed and and refusing to like take a job at the gap because it's beneath her she's yelling at him for not taking the job that he considers Beneath, or I mean, he doesn't even consider it beneath him, which is the interesting thing there, right? Like he's not like I'm too good to go work on the assembly line in the yep. same way that she very clearly says she is too good to work at all of these places. He is saying, "I'm not gonna fucking do it because it will kill my soul," mm-hmm. and like actually, I that is like it's a very real thing that you hear when you talk to people as i have done who work in actual like manufacturing plants right that like yeah these jobs do actually kill your soul and right now they're so romanticized in like you know 2021 america it's just like oh we need to bring back the factory jobs we need to save the factory jobs no one talks about how like they are exactly what he describes in that little Mm -hmm. thing where he talks about like you know i yeah, I, I wrote it all down.
2: It's very graphic. He says yeah, where like, he's
1: even just like, like, what is it you want from me? You want me to get a job on the line for the next 20 years till I'm granted leave with my gold-plated watch and my balls full of tumors because I surrendered the one thing that means shit to me? Yeah. And it's just like, that is very real. Yes. And yeah, and I just like, I was actually like, yeah, this, he's right in this argument even though he's wandered in with the girl he's picked up at the bar and like he is he's correct she's being the asshole Mm -hmm. not
3: only do these jobs kill your souls but quite famously in the case of DuPont and many others right they do actually give you cancer yeah so when he says the throwaway line balls or tumors in my balls like it's it I, I had that that like just a flash of DuPont and just like Mm -hmm. all of the people that worked in that factory that died or had health risks and health, health issues for the rest of their life. It kills your soul and it kills your body.
1: And we've never like, we're never told explicitly what his father does, but he is going to fly off to Chicago at the end of the film to Uh see, spoiler alert guys, to see his father die of prostate cancer, cancer, right? right? Like it's very real. And Winona Ryder's character's dad owns the factory. There is like literal class conflict happening here, right? (laughs) And like, you know, and so it's so interesting looking back on it to see all of these layers that I didn't at all pick up on when I was a kid, but I think it subliminally like shaped my politics. And I was just like, yeah, Ethan Hawke, he's really hot. He's definitely right. But he is. (laughs) He's
2: absolutely right. Ethan Hawke is always right, He's <laughs> not always.
1: But in this case, and
2: also in Good Lord Bird, <laughs> Yeah.
3: Uh, and in The First Reformed, another fantastic movie of his that we absolutely—you know—I haven't
1: adore. seen that yet. Oh yes. man, I know. Oh, yeah. I've, I've I've heard right. many good things. I mean, Add it just, to the
2: list.
0: Yeah, like
1: post Training Day, Ethan Hawke is just really—it's all good. It's, it's all good. good. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. When he couldn't like get by on being pretty anymore, um. Although I, whatever, I've never disliked Ethan Hawke. Oh, no. Um, I think I probably thought he was a jerk for a minute when he was cheating on Uma Thurman, but that's probably it. We love Ethan Hawke. We stay. We love Ethan Hawke. No, we
3: are Ethan Hawke apologists here.
1: Yes. I've even read one of his novels. Really? (laughs) Which was not bad. It was not bad. What novel? Um, Was it The Hottest State? Is that what it's called? I'm going to look it up. Um, because it was he's written two. Also, a couple of my favorite movies are um the Before Sunrise trilogy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we we directed by of course Richard Linklater. Linklater. We Um, just
3: did Slacker on the show and spent an entire like two hours talking about Richard Linklater and his sort of situation, his situating (laughs) himself in that particular uh, ilk of
1: of mm-hmm. 90s gen xers yeah yeah it was the hottest state that is the name of the novel All right. um and yeah i don't actually remember that much about it but i did read it at some point um i don't own it i took it out of the library yeah. but <laughs>
2: it's more about the feelings that came up while you were reading it more so I mean, than the story we'll itself
1: just, anyway so we stipulate <laughs> that i think Ethan hawk is hot and he's still hot even playing john brown um but like it's it's really interesting, right? To just think about like, and you know, when you end up with these movies with these rom-coms, where which I guess is kind of a rom-dramedy, but whatever. Um, at the end of it, you sort of catch yourself thinking, like, what actually happens to these characters? Like, do they stay together?
4: Mm-hmm. Do
1: they get jobs? And I actually just on this rewatching, I was noticing that as she was sprinting out the door to go to fly yes. to Chicago yes. catch him, she's wearing the Gap <laughs> those like the terrible gap, gap sleeveless shirts, and yep. I was like, huh? Sarah.
4: She took I just Sarah. caught that. How
1: many times have yeah. I watched this movie and I just caught that? She took the gap job.
3: I had the same moment of epiphany. Again, yeah. also a person who has, has seen this movie several times over the course <laughs> of my life, never noticed <laughs> that. And yeah. it is explicit. It is explicit. She is yeah. literally in the same uniform as Janine
1: Garofalo's right. character. And those hideous shirts, right? You remember hideous those shirts. hideous shirts. Come oh, on. I had oh, Hideous I had shirtless, them. sleeveless button downs. They were the worst thing. Unbutton the bottom two
3: buttons, tie the front in a little knot, call it a day. Oh, God. The sleeveless. It's so unflattering
1: on everyone, even skinny-ass Winona Ryder. Yes. Um, Yeah. But it's right. Exactly. I I cannot believe that I just noticed that today. And it's like, huh. So, yeah. So, I have no idea what they do for a living. But I kind of do like, yeah, maybe they do stay together.
3: (laughs) Well, the conversation about – so, I was, like, screaming in the kitchen at Aaron about this. (laughs) Because I was like – they they clearly shot a scene wherein her character arc resolves in this way right where she swallows her pride yeah she Mm -hmm. does this thing that her parents sort of you know sort of caustically advise her to do which is but also that
1: janine garofalo says right that Mm -hmm.
3: janine garofalo says and and she clearly takes the job right right and and that's her that's her character arc resolution they purposefully omit that scene and my hypothesis to Erin was that it did not conform to their non-conformist view of her to say she does take this like corporate retail job where you know it's beneath her and whatever we're supposed to really believe in this like artist type of the 90s that could live off of you know doing something (laughs) authentic ah, and right. air. Yes. Yeah. And like coffee. And shop
2: Don't forget and the big a big gulp. gulp. 44 ounces. Literally
3: they're making out clutching their big gulps. I was big gulps. I was like, if this I love is not I love 90s so consumerism <laughs> in a nutshell, just like sex it's and it's soda.
1: It's, but I totally so remember intense. those days of like being a, a bit younger than them. Like I remember being in high school, but like, yeah, getting the big gulp and having the big gulp for like a lot of the day. Um, so yeah, that's real. It's, it's just, yeah, I, I, I love that because now I just want to know like, right. She's clearly like working at the gap and working on her film in her own time. And maybe eventually she submits it to some film festival because that's of course what that character would end up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to write the sequel now. Ben Stiller, what's up? I think um, you got to do it, Sarah. <laughs> oh, I now I'm just like, will a magazine pay me to interview Ben Stiller about this movie? Um,
3: They one thousand percent will.
1: How many years (laughs) on? Which magazine do I pitch this to? I really want to have this conversation because I want to know exactly if all of them actually filmed that scene, if it was in the script, or if they just did that for nerds like us to finally catch on our like hundredth viewing of the film.
3: I am I am positive they filmed it. I am positive it was a part of her character's arc and they omitted it potentially for some like editing reasons but but the film is also edited very strangely so i don't even think that's really it
1: yeah there are definitely weird continuity bits like when she comes um when michael comes in to take her to the premiere and troy is sitting on like i'm switching to character names here but like yeah. when right ethan hawke is sitting on the couch even though they've just had a big fight and there's no reason why he would be back in the house yeah but he's there right. and it's just yes. like yeah. it's is why, why are you here? I mean, I like that you're here because I like this confrontation. And obviously, he has to be here when she comes back brokenhearted, so they can have their big whatever. But like, it is funny, right? Because you're just like, wait a minute, <laughs> there has been nothing in between her screaming at him to get a job, totally. and that he's going to end up a loser like his dad, and mm-hmm. now he's just back on the couch.
3: Now he's just hanging out.
2: There's a lot of these, and you know, yeah. to to offer maybe some light onto this. So, so the film itself <laughs> was written by a young woman named Helen Childress. Helen Childress, if
1: you're out there, I also want to talk to you.
2: She, you know, (laughs) here's the funny thing about it is she kind of disappeared from Hollywood for a little while. She has a couple of screenwriting credits on various sitcoms, Uh. dramas. She has five credits to her name on this sitcom Dramedy, whatever it is, uh, called Good Girls, the one that has Christina Hendricks. Oh yeah, in, on oh, at it at the moment.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, so so, she's, so working she's like back again. around.
2: Yeah, and I think that she's either you know a, 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 on this okay. writing staff, or she might even be like leading the writing the, the writer's room on I'm this writing particular. This
1: down because I'm gonna go look her up. <laughs> I'll
2: be like, so. Um, but but this is a new development as of like 2020. So so she is working again. But when she yeah. wrote the script, she was. A young woman in her early twenties writing. She was Lena. Yes, <laughs> she was. <Lelaina. laughs> she was, and they, you know they always say like don't don't write yourself into your screenplay, but she did not follow that advice and wrote. Of course uh, not. Who does it? Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> it's made an entire career for Lena Dunham.
2: Absolutely. It totally. Happens. Uh And and wrote a whole bunch of of her friends into this screenplay. Yeah. And and you can tell there's some authenticity here but initially yeah. I guess the the film was intended to be more of an ensemble kind mm-hmm. of drama um, yeah. comedy kind of thing with with much deeper textures and and storylines for each of for for the big characters. We Vicky would find out what Sammy, Sammy does character. for a living. We would you find would out find what out Sammy what... does for a living. Yes. <laughs> <Poor> um, <laughs> and interesting yeah. to note too that and I don't know how if if you all already knew this and I was just the odd man out here but the film is not reality bites like reality sucks the film yeah. is reality bites like right. bites of reality
3: oh yeah. i did not know that
2: it works yeah. both ways it's a double entendre i guess but uh but the way it was initially intended was to be bites of reality like sound bites yeah. i just shocked carly <laughs>
3: well but but so now i'm thinking and i'm i'm curious as to what your perspective on this is sarah given that you have known that is that reality bites as in it sucks and it's hard and it hurts. Yeah. Is that like a pop cultural, like did we square the circle there and just, just to, in in infer that into the title as like a manifestation of our ennui in the 90s <laughs> or like or did they purposefully market it that way because I, I don't remember
1: it's also like once again it's baked into the sort of inner thing because the the film that she makes is titled reality bites and it's like sort of going along with like pizza and all of the dumb things that they edited into right um, right it seems like this thing but yeah but obviously um yeah. Oh God. Now I want to read the original screenplay. Yeah, it's not a thing uh, well, you can find on the internet because you know.
2: I, <laughs> maybe, but here's, here's the other part of this that over the course of the, the early nineties, up until the point in which Ben Stiller gets involved, uh, Helen Childress wrote, I think something like 70 drafts of wow. the screenplay and could not figure it out. She had the Lelena character figured out. She had the Troy character figured out. Yeah. That makes sense to me, I guess you know if if she is in right. fact kind of writing it sort of metatextually as like herself and and this idolized version of of the man that she's going to fall in love with, but Ben Stiller comes in and starts to help her flesh out some of the other characters they write the script where did you uh, find it, all this
4: this, is, like, this where is, is, is
2: this is information coming from this, this is, is great
3: his, like movie nerd knowledge some, some like right. trade
2: stuff but it, it, there's a, a great resource called wikipedia as well that dilutes okay. a lot of this down well. but I, that's not me trying to be snarky it's just i was saying I, I don't do a lot of research i just end <laughs> <Yeah>. up like <laughs> reading some clips and finding an article he's
3: like i just google stuff I, just I guess stuff
2: um but you know the, the the point that you're making carly about um the the show in the movie being the sort of like meta textual reference point for the movie itself. The yeah. interesting thing is that the story of the movie's creation is the same story, right? Totally. So yeah. so
3: I'm whiling out over here. So
2: the so the film really ends up with literally ben stiller showing up and and helping get this thing made using a lot of his industry credit and the fact that he had a relatively successful sketch comedy show on mtv already that's right Um, i was
1: trying to remember what ben stiller did before this right mtv man the first time i saw ben stiller Mm yep
2: and there was a a 50 something executive uh whose last name escapes me but his name is michael uh, who was the producer, the producer of the the film alongside Danny DeVito, Danny DeVito. oddly enough, is God an executive bless Danny producer. DeVito, man. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the film comes to fruition in a very yeah. different version, eventually, as a byproduct of a lot of studio intervention, as a, a byproduct of of Ben Stiller coming aboard and taking the reins and trying to shape the movie into uh-huh. something that spoke to him. Um and and a lot of it gets cut out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There, there's also some production hell stuff where they the, the sure. studio initially like wrote it off as like a loss on their expenses and their tax filing, so it kind of fell into what's called like a turnaround, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and they ended up having to get some money from like the houston film commission and universal finally picked it up when they realized why was interested and why drafted into her contract that ethan hawk had to be a part of the sc- the, sh- the movie as
1: one does as one I, does. I, I look if i could write <laughs> ethan hawk into my contract i uh, also would who among us <laughs>
2: who among us cannot sympathize with this particular uh demand affidavit yes yeah <laughs> um but but ultimately, this is what happens, right? Is mm. is you know a, a a young idealistic woman writes a script, writes a piece that she sees as art, conveying something about the cultural context and and ripples of sort of like a a, a generation of people wants it to be made, gets in the room, only to have the thing kind of carved apart by uh, some some Hollywood types and comes out like this. It's still, I think, a, a really great film obviously and and has and and i think speaks to uh, a lot of the experience of the generation lots of people Mm -hmm. have very fond memories of it and feeling like it kind of had something to say but but it is ultimately still this commercialized product at the Mm -hmm. end of the day a la the reality bites television show that we get in the movie right um but we are we're talking all about like the 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 making of and some of our, our like you know reference points here but we haven't Yet talked about the actual plot of the film. Yeah. Oh shit. This is
0: because <laughs> it doesn't really back- have
1: that much of a plot. You know, it, it's it's it, no, a bit it's, of yeah. just like, yeah, you know, if which you gave the back of the box, how, yeah. Like,
3: how would you how would you describe it?
1: I mean, sort of the way she describes it, right? Which is, I'm trying to make a film about like young people trying to figure out their lives without any real role models, um, except one of them is really hot, and then they fall in love. Um, <laughs> that little it's, asterisk it's, it, I mean it's a movie the, the way I would have described it when I was 14 is it's this woman falling in love with her best friend and it's like oh the star crossed whatever and I would have totally mm. taken that line on it then right and now I look back on it and I'm just like this is a movie about the transition to the labor of love as an ethos and it's already crumbling yes. like it's a movie about the cracks in that made 20 something years before you know i wrote this book and people actually took it seriously like that's actually what i think it's about and the tension between this couple that falls in love messily is class Mm -hmm. right like ultimately she is the child of a factory owner who believes that she should have the job that she dreams of because she dreams of it and he is a working-class guy who, like, realizes that even if he gets his philosophy degree, he's reading, like, being in time in the coffee shop, for God's sake. Of course <laughs> he is. Uh, bless. And, yeah, but even if he gets his philosophy degree, what's he going to do? What does a guy like that do with a philosophy degree, right? Like, mm-hmm. become a high school teacher? Maybe. Right? Like, that's just... Yeah. And so all of these things that I would not have described it as back then and the film company, you know, Universal certainly wouldn't have described it as, mm-hmm. but actually I think that's what it's about. And yeah, I mean, I just sort of love like, again, like tracing these patterns of like, how are these people relating to the question of like, what are you going to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know lelaine is the only one who has a trajectory and the movie is about her trajectory falling apart you know it's like she is the valedictorian and she's got this job and she's going to be on her way upward except like the boss at the tv show where she works like has no interest in her documentary um my favorite Scene possibly in the movie is where she sabotages her boss <laughs> writing yeah. on his cue cards because he, he like sort of Then this is one of the better setup things actually in the movie is like this asshole boss just definitely like pays no attention to anything and just demands that she like hand him pre-written questions so that he doesn't have to think and so once he says something condescending about her film she writes a bunch of things on the cue cards that he just reads out on TV in front of a live audience and it's amazing.
2: It's really it good. It is
1: one of the greatest bits of workplace sabotage ever captured on TV, second <laughs> only to 9 to 5, which I've already talked about once in this podcast. Yes. Um,
2: we'll go we'll go for 3 if you can dying. get one more 9 to 5 <laughs> re- reference. Dolly, <I, laughs> <I,
3: laughs> Working class hero. Uh, yeah, exactly. Although this I'm still
2: mad at it. her
1: about her Super Bowl commercial.
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, we get mad at a lot of prominent people for their super bowl commercials yeah, we had an entire say. like 30 minute rant <laughs> on, on that on that bruce springsteen album oh. this last year i'm mad at bruce
1: for doing a podcast with obama so that yeah. yeah,
2: oh
3: yeah there's right a lot right of betrayal that. happening well, don't over worry there. they're gonna write
2: they're gonna make a book of it now so yes we don't care. god well uh, i find god.
3: it interesting though that you that you bring up the the sabotage moment yeah. because it does it does demonstrate something that the movie argues that right. I, I had i had some like issue with because I feel like there are some sort of racialized views uh, that this perspective that I'm about to say is leaving out. But nonetheless, what the movie argues ostensibly is that these like corporate squares, right? These yuppies are brainless, like mindless dolts and that the real sort of true intellect and uh, authenticity is found in these, you know, counterculture, like nonconformist slackers. It sort of takes this view of intellect and invert something that we see with the knowledge economy, which, Mm -hmm. which was painting a very different story that the technocracy, the sort of corporate leaders of industry and, and, and the future of our, of our world that they contain all the creativity and innovative, you know, capacity. Right. Um, So I found that interesting because that, that I felt like is very much situated in the subjective perspective of, the Troy character right that he does actually mm. believe that these corporate squares are the mindless dolts that, yeah, that run I mean, he the literally,
1: world yeah he literally literally says to Michael like there's an IQ prerequisite right mm-hmm. um yeah and i think but i think i i read that now as class rage right mm-hmm. that like we don't know as i mentioned earlier how michael got to be this tv executive but it clearly wasn't like meritocratic in any way like mm-hmm. right his dad was probably the 50-something executive who handed it on down to his kid, right? Like, in-your-face TV just feels like something that, like, somebody's dumb kid would start, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just clearly, right? Um, yeah, and so, like, reading it now as, like, this guy who we're going to assume is the kid of a factory worker who got cancer from working on the line is aware that this isn't going to let him in no matter how much Heidegger he reads. Right. You know? Yeah. no matter matter how much Hegel, no matter how much whatever it is that he reads, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. That's not going to be the ticket upwards. And this is sort of how I felt. And I, you know, graduated from college almost a decade after these people did. But these fake people, it's a movie. But like, you know, I graduated (laughs) from college. They're real. Right. I finished college in 2002 with an English degree, with also sort of class-muddled parents. Mm -hmm definitely not having a like here's your greased trajectory into a career like I dicked around for 5 years then went to grad school finally got into journalism and finally at age 41 maybe someday I'll be able to buy an apartment um so you know I can relate that yeah that I, I think it's less that like the real intellect is going to be found by being a slacker and more just like you're not going to get into these places by being smart like i think that's really the case that it it actually Mm -hmm. ends up making yep yep because like the tension between troy and elena like it doesn't really ever get entirely resolved um and now that we've noticed that she's wearing the gap clothes i i feel like that bit of tension is interesting but like we don't actually see which one is gonna win that argument right the one that they Mm -hmm. will intensely keep having because like it's not a winnable argument yes you know because she still has privilege that he doesn't she can still call her dad to get a job interview for him and she still has her dad's gas card which is another favorite thing about the movie when she just like starts living off of her dad's gas card um, because her parents won't lend her money when she gets fired from the job for sabotaging her evil boss (laughs) so Yeah, I I mean, I love the gas card bit. Um, It's a wonderfully sort of made montage scene, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe this is the place to talk about the cinematography because that's one of the bits where you do see Sun where she's like in sunglasses at the gas pump, like (laughs) looking very cute while, you know, getting people to like let her pay for their gas on the gas card so that she can take their cash. Um, It's a great scam. It's a great scam. It reminded me
3: actually of the Cindy... uh... Oh no, I can't remember her name. The famous supermodel of the 90s with the beauty mark Cindy Crawford Cindy Crawford, Cindy Crawford. it reminded me of the Cindy uh, the Cindy Crawford coat commercial where she's at the gas station and she's in like oh, jeans yes. and yep. a t-shirt and she's uh-huh. kind of like you know like pumping and she's just hanging out and i i found so many moments like that in the movie where i, I and and you mentioned this offhand, and I think is a really yeah. interesting detail that despite these people being intensely anti-consumerist, intensely yes. anti-corporate, that they are completely identified with products yeah. and like slogans mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like cultural markers and TV and media. Yeah. Yeah. and and it's an interesting sort of um it's an interesting kind of aesthetic choice to see a lot of that show up in the movie itself
1: yeah, yeah. i mean when right troy i want to buy the world of coke um yes. yeah and they're they're sort of right they're they're playing with it all the time it's singing the schoolhouse rock songs like there's right. all sorts of little bits of things embedded in there Lelena um,
2: even says at one point something like "I'm I'm bursting with fruit flavor," or one yeah. of the characters
1: mm-hmm. does. So yeah, I, Troy says it. Of course, Troy he does. does. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's right. Like this guy who's carrying being in time in the coffee shop is also quoting these commercials, and it that mm-hmm. feels very nineties to me. Yep. The way that sort of all of these things were stewing around in your brain as like all of these different bites of reality. There we go. Um, mm-hmm. That that like that make up sort of. Identities, you know that that mm-hmm. would like this was peak being. So I'm thinking of Anne Elizabeth Moore's book Unmarketable right now, mm-hmm. which is about like that sort of um, period of like uh, guerrilla marketing and all of that junk, where like the attempts to make these brands cool was to make people like the real world version of these characters identify yep. with these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and oh, what year was that book? the book was like the mid to late two thousands, but like, it's describing this sort of phenomenon over like the previous 20 years, basically. Um, and Naomi Klein's no logo, of course, Mm, um, the way that, right. That like the, the way we got to talking about capitalism by the end of the nineties was to talk about corporations and brands. And we were talking about Nike and sweatshops, right. There was a students against sweatshops, um, occupation on my campus when I was in college. Mm -hmm. Um, you couldn't say capitalism, but you could talk about like advertising and you could sort of critique the way these things were all shoved down your throat a million times a day. Um, We couldn't just say like capitalism. And this is why it's so interesting to sort of go back to this movie and look at like the actual pretty blunt critiques of capitalism, where he's just Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to work on the line for 40 years. Yes. You know, that like, that's all actually right there in this movie. It's not subtext; it's literal text. Yes, yeah. it's scripted into the film. It makes
2: me—it yeah. makes me wonder if, like Linklater, saw something in Ethan Hawke after this film and then started casting him because he like made Slacker and then saw this person who was like the the, the embodiment of his sort of like platonic ideal of the slacker that he was uh, empathizing with in that film, and I then think they you're got right about that. But, so uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that they have I. Because I have gone down the rabbit hole of the Before Sunrise movies because I love those so much. Mm -hmm. Um, Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke are the, sorry, sorry Winona, I love Julie Delpy more. Um, But the, yeah, the sort of relationship that like Richard Linklater and Ethan Hawke have that like they keep making those installments of that film series Mm -hmm. um, over decades, which I just love. That's um, great. And it, that's sort of the model for what he ends up doing with boyhood, right? Boyhood. Which is like following mm-hmm. this literal child, um which I've not actually seen.
3: Shut
2: up. I? I haven't either. Okay. I, you've seen it, Carly. Right? I've seen
3: it. I saw it How in theaters, it? which I think was probably the wrong context, actually, <laughs> okay. to see that movie. Um, yeah. And I saw it when I was like, you know, Whenever it came out, like I I did not, my, my cerebrum was still quite smooth. I think he didn't really like (laughs) understand what I was watching, but But now I think formally there's very, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that we actually talked about when we came back to Slack slacker that link leader has been sort of asking us for decades, which is like, Mm -hmm. what is, real and what is yep. artifice anyway right yeah. particularly when you're going to see a film so if yeah. if for n- no other reason i would say watch it for that for that okay. question
1: yeah i mean i'm I'm generally a fan i think he's yeah. an interesting you know for a white guy um and i mean as you alluded to earlier like reality bites is like the whitest movie on the planet it's i think there's white, one yes. person of color who like crosses the screen it's yep. so white and it's in houston yeah <laughs> Yep. Like, hi, how did you find a Houston with no black people in it? With movies, no Latinos man. in it? Like nothing. Hollywood. Thanks, um, thanks, yeah, Hollywood, just, yeah. It's just a lot. But okay, so that, yeah, <laughs> would have complicated some of these discourses about class, but all of these movies are just like, we can't tackle race and class at the same time because that would be just like way too complicated, even though right. that's how most people live their lives. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and
2: this, this kind of brings up a thing that I, I think Carly and I were talking about off air, which is, you know, the idea, this, this ideal of the slacker mm-hmm. and its relationship as sort of like an, an idolized entity, something to sort of aspire to, this kind of countercultural yeah. maven of sorts. Uh, and, and putting that alongside the uh, manufactured concept of the welfare queen, you mm-hmm. know, uh, of, of, of like the, of, of the lazy, bla- specifically black woman right. who right. refuses to work, right? Yeah. And, and and those two things just juxtaposed, I think is, is, um, yeah. Welfare reform was
1: 96. Mm -hmm. This movie was 94. Um, if you had Ethan Hawke's lines coming out of the mouth of even a black man, but definitely a black woman, that would have been totally different. We should know that I am speaking in front of my George Michael tea towel and George Michael back in the eighties was writing songs about quitting your job to go on the dole because George Michael is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Wham! Rap, <laughs> kids, go back and listen to it. It's despite it being Wham! Rap, it, it is kind of wonderful, and George Michael it's, is the best. It slaps. It slaps, and it is this slacker ethos before the '90s, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like it's that sort of midpoint between punk and grunge, I guess. Um, yes. Yeah. Although the Reality Bites soundtrack is actually pretty grunge-free. it's It's, there's a lot of
3: asynchronous music happening it's it's pretty clean,
2: and this is actually maybe a moment i want to draw a beat on this really quickly i don't need either of you to remark upon this but i just noticed this as we were watching by like the third time i was like disassociating so (laughs) so so the the film starts with uh, with rock and roll part two with the gary glitter track (laughs) many of us know the history of gary glitter he's not a good guy he you know uh had some involvement with some uh, some children in in a very inappropriate it's manner. He's he's children. serving yeah. jail sentence for like 15 years, whatever. Um, but then also the song they dance to at the gas station is my Sharona, Sharona. which is written by uh, Doug Feigl or Doug Feiger, excuse me, of, of the Knack. And the song was written when he was like in his late 20s about like a 15 year old fan of the band that he was obsessed with. And then also, like at, at the end here, um, not the end, like the, the midpoint of the movie, when when she sabotages her job, um, John Mahoney's character, the thing that she puts on his card that gets the gas from the audience is him saying, I've always had an affinity for young girls. Very young
1: girls, yeah. And I was like, what is
2: going on with this movie that this keeps coming up? And granted, you know, some of that's hindsight. We didn't really know these things about Gary Glitter in yeah. 1994,
1: but I was like, what? What is happening? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because like the the iconic song of this movie was the Lisa Loeb song. It was kind of Lisa Mm -hmm. Loeb's one really, really big hit. And like, it's been in my head for the last three weeks since I Mm -hmm. watched it. And I I did like listen (laughs) to the soundtrack a few times through. Um, There's obviously Peter Frampton, which is like an Mm -hmm. interesting choice for the Michael character to love. Um, And the U2 song, the like melodramatic whatever is you two's yes. all I want is you, which I got to say also, despite like Bono just being in fucking sufferable at this point, like I do love that song and it does have like a Pavlovian response in me where it just like makes me miss yep. like being 18 and being in love. Yep. Um, and yeah, um, I. but the rabbit hole I actually went down after watching it was Juliana Hatfield. Who is okay, great,
4: yeah, mm-hmm.
1: um, and it like, and then that led me, thank you, Spotify, to the wonders of basically all of those like early nineties girl like rock bands, right? So mm-hmm. Belly and the Breeders and like, yes, Juliana Hatfield and all of that, and it's like a very um, yeah, it's it's like the alter the alter ego to grunge, right was this mm-hmm. like kind of femme, but still rock. Um, for there's so many of these bands that I loved when I was that age, like so much. And I mean, I, you know, I loved Kurt Cobain as much as the next 14 year old girl. But like, that, yeah, that, that the echoes of that in this movie are really interesting, because like, you would think that it would be um, like singles, is that is that a one you've done yet? Um, no, but I was no, I was just gonna bring that another up. Another very yeah. particularly '90s slacker movie, right? And very uh, grunge heavy as very well. Very grunge. Yeah, well, it exactly. takes place in it's Seattle, in Seattle yeah. and it's right. like yes. the whole thing is, um, yeah. The sort of the air of this movie is is interestingly sort of light on this major culture. Again, it came out in 1994, the year Kurt Cobain died. Like, yep, you know that Troy listens to Nirvana. Because his band is like a Nirvana ripoff. And he that's the sure only does. bit of it in there that like Troy's band is like, which is also Ethan Hawke actually singing because of course it is. Thank you, Ethan yes. Hawke.
3: And actually playing guitar because yep. of course mm-hmm. it yep. is.
1: Ethan Hawke, we love Ethan you. Hawk. Here's here's um, another
2: fun through line for you. I was thinking when you mentioned this scene at the gas station, that this yeah. is uh, the first time, but not the last that Ben Stiller stages uh, an important scene in one of his movies around a gas station, the other one being the gas Zoolander? fight in Zoolander. <laughs> yes. yes, which if you recall, is soundtracked by Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go by Wham.
3: Uh, it's all <laughs> See? coming together.
1: All Comrade there. George is with us always. Um, Comrade George was actually a communist, it's great. Um, yes. So I was also thinking about, so right after, right, like the one time that we see one of these fights between Troy and Lelena actually get resolved is after she gets fired, right? And then Mm -hmm. she says the snotty thing to Vicky about, I'm not going to work at the gap for God's sake. And like, he, despite having every reason to be like, wow, that was a dick thing to say, um, then takes her on a walking tour of all of the times he's been fired and then kisses her. Because of course he does. Mm
0: -hmm. But like,
1: That bit, you know, and it's so interesting because the thing that I sort of got stuck on there is like, he takes her on this tour. He's just basically trying to prove to her like how she's doing great and how highly he thinks of her. He sits down and he's telling her like, I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to see you on TV and you're going to have forgotten all about me and you're going to be beautiful and shit and like super successful. And then in the next scene, she's with Michael and he says like, your work is good, and she's like, "That's like the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me." And I'm like, "You just had the most like beautiful speech come out of this man who then like kissed you, and you're like, uh, I think I'm gonna go back to my yuppie boyfriend." Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the nicest thing he's ever said to you is that your work is good. Yeah. Right? Like that. That, that yeah. whole bit is like, ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's that whole like juxtaposition there. I think is really interesting. And they're like, you know, and she's with Michael, and they're like. I think supposed to be in a hotel cause they look like they're wearing hotel bathtub bathrobes. Yes. Um, and yeah. And you just sort of look at it. Like, do we ever see inside of Michael's apartment? We don't, they like fuck in his car the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they're in this like thing that looks like a hotel. We see his office cause she breaks his planet of the apes figurine. Yes.
3: Um,
1: but we never see his home.
3: Mm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, like I really appreciate you bringing this up, Sarah. Because this happens
2: all the time in '90s movies.
1: <laughs> what, like, what? No, people you, don't have homes.
2: No, that that they don't show the homes of specifically the person who's the most well off. We were just like we talked mm. about this. At, we talked about this at length when we were talking about uh, Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire, where uh. almost all of that film is staged uh at events or at renee zellweger's house like this very like kind of like middle class like sharing a home with her older sister played by bonnie hunt kind of thing and we only maybe like one time see jerry's apartment and even then we're not sure if it's his it may be his his fiance's his ex his ex-girlfriend
3: it's because he's trying to sell boutique sports management so we can't see him in a penthouse apartment it doesn't work right And I feel like the thing with Ben Stiller's character is despite the fact that he has all of these trappings of, you know, uh, elite status, he's still, I I actually found myself, uh, conversely, Perhaps from your experience, having a little bit more sympathy for him this go round. Oh yeah. Like I think my acid he's reflux. He's not a bad guy, which is not, not a bad guy. guy yeah.
4: you know? Yes, mm-hmm.
3: but I definitely remember hating him. I, like when I first watched this, I was like, yeah. "This guy sucks." But I think that was that sort of like learned, yeah, you know, acid reflux to yeah the corporate elite. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the. Again, like Ben Stiller made the movie and gave himself this role. So obviously, like he thought a lot about this. But I think he mm-hmm. actually does a very good job in this movie. Because like if if that character, if you don't buy that character, the movie falls apart. Yes. More than any of the rest of them. Like you actually have to like find this guy charming enough. You know, he gets in some good lines. Yeah. Like when he's like, I think I know what she needs in a way that you never will, even though he's wrong. And then when they both go running out after the of the music club after her, yep.
4: That's and my he's favorite you know
1: line. Troy does his deep like everyone dies alone, and he's like, "Yeah, if you think that, what are you looking for out here?" And yep. it's just like Michael kind of calls everyone on their shit in a way yes. that like, yeah, I mean he's not a bad guy, he's just kind of a yuppie douchebag. He's mm-hmm. like,
3: <laughs> kind of a yuppie douchebag in like weird oversized Armani suits. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah i mean and right it's just that he sells it so well and i just like yeah I, like i said this movie makes me just like like ben stiller more um not that i disliked ben stiller before that but like yeah it's it's on rewatching it you're like he actually has the hardest job in this movie he does mm-hmm. um with like the least airtime and sort of like has to do the most in every scene that he's in um yeah I mean this is this is what I find interesting about this movie ultimately is that like nobody is entirely right. There's no one character that you are supposed to be like everything they say is right and everything they say is wrong. Um you know as opposed to some other I think I also suggested Clerks which is also a wonderful mm-hmm. 90s movie about work and like the thing about all of the Kevin Smith movies is the thing that that Kevin Smith says in the movie is the point of the movie which is just so whatever so like the one time that silent bob speaks it's like here is the pithy point of this movie in a five second speech because (laughs) kevin smith's not actually that good a filmmaker but i love clerks nope (laughs) i do love clerks but like yeah there's nobody in this movie that you were supposed to agree with all of the time all of them are variously sort of neurotic and wrong and like shitty to each other in the way that people are shitty to each other Mm -hmm. and i think The stuff weirdly that feels the most dated to to me about it is actually like the AIDS panic and the the coming out story. Yes, Um, that that is is a very like I remember that so clearly. I was telling my flatmates that I'm living here in London with a couple of women who are a bit younger than me, and so I I was sort of saying like, yeah, it was a very weird thing to like get sex ed in the middle in the height of AIDS, right before Mm -hmm. antiretrovirals and and all of that stuff, and like. They were literally telling, you know, suburban kids in Massachusetts, like, you can have sex once and you will, like, have an AIDS baby and die. Um, And that was was their sex ed. They scared the crap out of me. Um, And right. And, like, seeing this movie with a straight woman as the character having this sort of, you know... Mm -hmm. narrative around the AIDS panic um in a way that doesn't slut shame her right like you see that bit where the guy leaves and she writes the name in the notebook it clearly has a lot of names in it Mm -hmm. um and then you know later like I I find the scene in the diner where she like sort of lets us in on how scared she actually is of this really compelling Mm -hmm. um I mean, I love Janine Garofalo, right? Like, who doesn't love Janine yes. Garofalo? she's amazing. Um, she has a second hardest job in this movie after Ben Stiller. Um, and she's just like, you know, she's like, if one more guy walks out on me and Winona Ryder's like, but you're out the door before the condom comes off. And she's like, I am just beating them to the punch. Like, mm-hmm. that, it's, mm, it's so well done. Um, I really, really, really love that whole sort of arc and then you know as we have discussed poor Steve Zahn got left on the cutting room floor probably a bit too much um, mm-hmm. because his character sort of just ends up being like there most of the time yep. and yep. like the punchline is kind of that he's there all the time yeah. <laughs> and then they they try briefly to give him like something meaningful to do like coming out to his mom but it, it's mm-hmm. really sort of undersold yes yeah but like those those bits are the things that feel very early 90s to me right the way that like those things are, are sort of played out in the mm-hmm. film connected to all of these questions of like what are you going to be when you grow up you know also, are you going to grow up
3: well this is a great chance, a great moment for us to talk about the very beginning of the film yeah. which
1: her, val- opens her valedictory speech
3: with an yes. unanswered question <laughs> which is just such a perfect it's like so crystallization uh, so yeah, yeah. So wh- what do you make of that? Because we, we were going sort of all over the place when we were talking about it. I would yeah. love to hear your thoughts.
1: Oh, God, I love it because it's, it's exactly right. Like, like I was saying, like the trajectory of this film is that like Lelaina has her whole life figured out, all the questions answered, she knows what she's going to do, and then it blows up in her face. And literally, mm-hmm. the speech just blows away, and she can't remember the answer, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's great, because clearly she's supposed to have written this speech, and yet... And she's built it up to this point. The answer is, the answer is simple. The answer is, I don't know. Because it's gone. (laughs) Um, And that's exactly what happens during this movie, right? Every assumption that she thinks she has figured out just unravels on her. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is the story of the 90s, right? That like slowly all of these things that we were told during the 80s were unraveling on us to end in 2001 with 9-11 and then really end in 2008 with the you know, financial Mm -hmm. crisis. And like, so like the slow sort of unraveling of all of these things that like, that's what I think the sort of slacker moment was trying to tell us, right? Is like the stuff that they were selling us in the 80s is is just like a bunch of sort of Coke-fueled nonsense. And the reality (laughs) is going to be very different. Yes. Um, Back again to the title of the film.
2: Yeah. There's there's another part at, at the early parts early stages of the film here where mm-hmm. Troy shows up and and Janine Garofalo mentions oh yeah he's going to be living with us now for a little bit because mm-hmm. he just got fired from the newsstand and there's right. a great exchange between the two of them that I think speaks to this and this like kind of buy in into like the early 90s neoliberal imaginary where mm-hmm. Janine Garofalo says he's just going to stay here until he gets a solid job and saves up some money and can yeah. afford a place of his own mm-hmm. and uh Lilena, Wayne Owner Writer's character, says that's the American dream of the nineties. Yep. That could take years. in my notes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just like that whole thing is so yeah, it's so funny. It's just like That's her first temper tantrum about him needing to get a job, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she mentions it in that beginning scene where, you know, after they've graduated and we see them on the roof and they're, you know, she's filming her documentary and she makes a joke about like, and you wonder why we never got together. But like, this is the first of several temper tantrums she will throw at him about getting a job in this movie. And yeah, it's it's great, right? Because again, like it sets up perfectly the twist that's going to happen, which is like, he will turn our home into the den of slack. Yeah, Who turns the home into the den of slack? Actually her. Right. With her $400 phone bill calling the psychic hotline, <laughs> which is also so 90s. So, so
3: 90s. 90s. LaToya I, Jackson's hotline. LaToya. I remember those commercials, mm. man. Yep. I screamed yep. when I saw her because I forgot that they actually like insert Had the LaToya a clip. real commercial. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, you know, we come back to this thesis on the show a lot. um, And it's one of the reasons we look at the movies of the 90s specifically, is that there was, as you say, Sarah, this sort of like indigestion of the promises of neoliberalism. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like happening on the part of, you know the The younger generation coming up and realizing mm-hmm. like this doesn't feel right. this is this is too narrow an aperture. I don't this doesn't sit well with me. And yeah. also, I'm looking at the horrors sort of strewn about, and i can't I can't make sense of what you're promising me right and 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 yet, what's interesting is that, and I love that she says I don't know, not just because it's sort of re- representative of, everything her that she's, you know, potentially has figured out blowing up in her face. But it is also, in my mind, representative of the fact that this population did not have an answer for where this sort of ambient anxiety was coming from. Mm-hmm. They did not know sort of where to place their antagonisms. Right. Even as we say, when there's very clear class rage, they don't quite know. They can't say the word capitalism. Right. As you say, it's coded in corporations and consumerism, but we yeah. can't say capitalism and and so it's interesting to me that, that the film opens with the I don't know because I think for the entire decade yeah. of the 90s This generation was not able to answer the question of what didn't feel right. And we see it in the movies. Mm -hmm. We see it all the way up to the Matrix where, you know, we're we're sort of, we know there's something wrong, but we don't know why or what even an alternative solution looks like. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Although I do note that Vicky has a poster of Gorbachev on her wall. Yes.
3: (laughs) I totally missed that
1: um it's amazing or in the first bit we're actually where like they're panning in on that guy like getting out of her bed there is Gorbachev on her wall it's great oh my god um so you know that was that was also a thing that had just happened um poor Gorbachev man he's still around he's still he, still alive still oh. like yeah still kicking still he put out a book recently oh my is I think, he tweeting? It. He's not tweeting. I would really love it if Gorbachev was on Twitter. That would rule. Um, Maybe we can get him on the show. Oh, God. I thought about like, I was like, who will pay me to interview Gorbachev? I really want to talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to talk. I'm just full of interview ideas here. Anybody who's listening to this and wants to pay me. So here's the thing, though, that like, so I, I mentioned at the beginning, right, that this is like this, this already the sort of failures of the the labor of love Mm -hmm. and there's at least two bits in the movie that i took note of where somebody basically says that they would work for free if they didn't have to um so winona ryder's creepy boss says you know i could get a bunch of people would do your job for free like that um Mm -hmm. when she screws up with the coffee the first time when she like doesn't put the coffee there and he just like threatens to replace her Um, and then when they're on the date in the sob with the big gulps um and Ben Stiller is just like yeah I would like work if I didn't have to and like I don't really want like a big house I just want like a nice house and I'm not really that into cars and she's just like yeah and you're not really into suits either and like cars about right. it right because it's obvious bullshit he obviously thinks this is what she wants to hear because even then you knew you weren't supposed to be the yuppie right like yes you're you're you know the yuppie is Whatchamacallit, American psycho, right? You're not supposed to want to be the yuppie. That's not cool. So he's just like, I would, you know, I would work for free, man. And like obviously she is working for free, literally doing her documentary like at night in the TV studio. And yeah, and we we sort of never find out if she gets paid for the the movie, because apparently all of that just evaporates at the end of whatever, because she and Troy get together and that's really all that matters. It is all that matters. (laughs)
2: It is. Love love conquers all. That's like Forget
1: uh, politics, yeah. man. But it's just... interesting. I actually, like, I, I think about this. I, you know, at the end of my book, I'm sort of writing about, like, okay, so work is not actually meant to be the center of our lives. So what do we mm-hmm. love? And, like, I remember very clearly, like, being brought up as a kid in the 80s, you know, my parents saying, like, you don't need a man. You don't need to worry about this. You just, like, get a job and do what you love. Except every time I said, well, great, I want to write novels. They were like, haha, that's not a real job you know, um, this tension, which is all over this movie, right. It's it's all Mm -hmm. of this is like, I want to make this documentary that says something meaningful. And everybody at every turn is like, how do we make money on it? Right. First her creepy boss, her parents, um, then Ben Stiller. And the only person who doesn't want her to like make money on it is, is Troy, um, who also has a labor of love, his band that he does not want to turn into a job. And again, like that, that God, that scene, I'm just going to keep coming back to because like, you know, where she's like, you want to be in a band, then be in a band. And I remember like, as like an 18 year old being like, yeah, be in a band. And now I'm just like, yeah, but what if you don't want to monetize this thing that you just actually enjoy doing and whatever it's right. like, fine. There's a Sylvia Federici quote that I use in my book that's just like, you know, nothing so effectively stifles our desires as, as basically turning them into work. Um, yep. And... Yeah, so sort of at the end of the movie, I'm actually like fine with them just like making out on the couch being the end of the movie and the the voicemail being his voice talking about like the existential dilemmas of whatever. Um, <laughs> and that's like the last lines of the movie is is yeah. his voicemail, you know, joke about existentialism. <laughs> it's great. And like I actually think that's fine. Like the the most important things in this movie are the ways that these people do all figure out how to be there for each other. mm mm-hmm. Mhm right when sammy comes out to his mom and they're helping him rehearse and then they're sort of there with him when his mom won't let him back in the house when vicky takes her aids test um and they're again in the diner where you know winona's just like we will handle it together whatever it is we'll handle it and troy puts up with her having temper tantrums about how he needs to get a job and takes her out for big gulps and cigarettes and like the thing that's actually meaningful about all of that is like these people are figuring out that like they are what matters whatever job they have is actually bullshit because they're all figuring out how to take care of each other and i think that's actually um a nice little communist message for this movie (laughs) yes (laughs) because yeah i just I, i you know so romantic love doesn't have to be it but i think the point and maybe the you know original ensemble drama that the writer wanted to make might have been more so of this but like I Mm -hmm. think that that's really sort of important that like ultimately you know work is gonna suck and even if you get your dream job it's probably gonna blow up in your face at least once and how do we get through any of that as we do have to figure out how to like take care of each other and not be assholes about it
3: yes completely you know someone recently on on an episode was uh saying, what did Robbie say? It was like the, the, the real, uh, the the real surplus value value is the the friends friends we made made along the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Was that the slacker episode? I'm going to have Yeah, it was, (laughs) but, but it is,
3: it it is this message of, of, you know, to your point, I'm, I'm actually sort of rethinking now my statement about that it doesn't really offer an alternative solution. It does, as you say, really show us the value in community and the value in sort of like, our interconnectedness um and that not only that that has value but that that is also what allows us to cope as you say that uh, that allows us to sort of deal with the alienation and the violence of the system
1: yeah Mm -hmm. i mean the the you don't know what she needs bit right and like they're sort of arguing about what she needs and it's like well it turns out that michael really doesn't know what she needs because he thinks what she needs is is you know pizza or whatever it is it's edited into her her movie right (laughs) right and money and and those things right and it's so funny because even when he's trying to apologize he sort of doesn't know what he did wrong right and so he's just like i'll get them to take the pizza bit out and she's just like you know like what that's like yeah um and yeah and so you know it's it's Right. Like the, the bit about the, you know, when she and Troy are on that walk and he's like, you know, you and me and five bucks, and it's, you know, a couple of cigarettes and a coffee or big gulp, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like the choice that actually matters at the end of the day. Yeah. I guess it's interesting. Cause right. When I was like a teenager watching this, I would have been like, Oh, the love story is so amazing. And looking back on it, like I'm still a sucker for that. Absolutely. But like, you know, I went through a period of being like, you know, girl bossy kind of like, oh, these romantic movies, whatever, blah. And then, like, I actually come back to them now, and I'm just like, this is actually like much more profound. Like, I really do love the the Richard Linklater Before Sunrise movies because they're just about humans talking to each other, and mm-hmm. like that sounds like it could be incredibly boring, and it's the most amazing thing in the world because you're just watching these two incredible actors like. Yeah, I, uh, anyway, we're talking about Reality Bites here, but- <laughs> No, no, but this
4: we're gonna, is- We're this gonna is, have you back on is, for the
1: I know, I was gonna say, I'm like, I'm thinking of I all these movies we need to talk before to you about. Sunset, sun, or before Sunrise, Before Sunset, which is the best one, mm-hmm. and Before Midnight. Um. But yeah, the the way that, ultimately, that the only answer that these movies have, um, singles too, right? At the end, the last scene is like in the elevator and, and he says, bless you, and she sneezes. And that's a whole thing that's been built up if you haven't watched singles, but like that, those bits, I actually looking back on them, I really, really love.
3: But there is an added layer here, Sarah, of the fact that this choice to sort of situate yourself and orient your energy and sort of emotional capacity into this community of people and into your, you know, romantic and relationship connections even that is like not really a choice that people are afforded anymore. Like we were talking recently about like how the ability to be a slacker is something that like really only existed for a short moment in history um, in sort of the nascent stages of neoliberalism. And that now even this this choice to opt out, if you are, you know, someone like a Troy, right? Like he is not, uh, the people that are opting out are people that have tech trust jobs funds. and mm-hmm. like trust funds yep, and yeah. right. And, and that like a person like Troy cannot even really survive anymore. Yeah.
1: No, the minimum wage erosion is real. Right. That like, mm-hmm. what is, oh, God, I should have looked this up. What was the buying power of the minimum wage in like 1994? Um, um, whatever the point being, the minimum wage is eroded like crazy. And yeah, yep. like you could, at some point, not to mention housing costs have gone through the roof in a lot of places. I don't know Mm -hmm. Houston off the top of my head, but like you can't live in anywhere basically in the US on a minimum wage job and like rent Mm -hmm. an apartment. That's just not a thing. and that's real, the minimum wage hasn't gone up in quite a long time. Um, the tipped minimum wage has not gone up, I think since 1990 something. Um, it certainly hasn't gone up since I worked as a waitress and the last time I did, th- I started doing that in 1998. So yeah, like you, you couldn't do that. Um, and this is still, the nineties is still like harder than it was in, you know, 1968 when the minimum wage was at its peak. Um, when you know you could move to New York City and be Patty Smith and trade the owner of the Chelsea Hotel art for, you know, a room to live in <laughs> or you could yeah. squat on the lower east side like yes. you know, that kind of thing or you know George Michael being on the dole um those things were all gone right again like welfare reform we brought up at the beginning of this happens 2 years after this movie um Troy wouldn't have been eligible for it cuz he's a dude but like other subsidies, things like that, have also eroded in value. Like, there's basically no support anymore that even would have made, like, being a dude who works in a coffee shop and is in a band a thing. You know, I think about even, again, when I moved to New Orleans to go to, to college in 1998. Um, was there 98 through 2002. And I was working at a restaurant four nights a week, and I was making enough money to live on. And Mm -hmm. I moved away from New Orleans, actually, because I just, I I could feel the den of slack sort of descending on me, right? Where it was like, it would have been way (laughs) too easy to stay there with my English degree and my restaurant job that was all right. It wasn't great, but it made me enough to live on. And my $300 a month rent. And like, could have had a good life and just like sat around trying to write my novel and like that you know i ran away from that thinking like oh my god i've got to be a real person i've got to get a real job and now i look back at my life going why didn't you stay especially because you know 3 years later hurricane katrina comes through new orleans and nothing has been the same since yeah um you know you you look at that period now as like oh i could have had a different life with a different level of hustle and maybe done different things. And like, I'm not, you know, I have it pretty good compared to a lot of people right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's so interesting to look back at these moments where like, yeah, you could be the guy who works in a video store, right. Clerks. Um, you could be, I don't actually remember slacker, but like, yeah, you could be that guy and just like have an okay life.
3: And along with that, too, along with the minimum wage, you know, sort of material erosion is and this is something you talk about in your book, is the sort of social status erosion Mm -hmm. of these service industry jobs and the way that as they have proliferated and women have become, you know, sort of the the fill-ins as Mm -hmm. industry jobs have left courtesy of NAFTA and a whole bunch of other things. Also
1: 1996. Also -hmm. 1996,
3: something we talk about a lot on this show. Thanks Bill. Thanks Bill. Um, But that, that, you know, not only has the ability to sort of financially survive, but like the, the, the social status of having a decent life, you know, working in a coffee shop and like working on your novel or whatever, like, that is now com- has completely been er- obliterated. We don't even deserve. Mm-hmm. We don't even think these people deserve, you know, healthcare or or a livable wage anymore. And and we are calling their jobs essential, and yet you know, refusing to actually like acknowledge that the average wage of someone that works in like a service industry job is like thirty eight, not a teenager, right? Right. It is. It is like yeah.
1: a a job. Yeah, it's a thirty eight year old woman.
3: It is a right. thirty-eight-year-old woman. woman, probably mm-hmm. a black woman, and and so it, it. What I what I found myself thinking about too was that even this kind of like, not only did did the material sort of functionality of that possibility erode, but that also the social, uh, the social cachet, the sort of cultural cachet that that would have allowed you to stay at New Orleans in New Orleans potentially. And, and if in perpetuity, like you wanted to, you were able to survive on that and still work on your novels, like that we could live in a world where like, that was okay. Right. That that job wasn't seen as like beneath anyone or, um, you know, like I think about the woman in your book that worked at, uh, Toys R Us for years yeah. and, and, you know, that there was this tension of getting a real job and she's right. like I bust my ass yeah. every day and yeah. so it th- that's the other thing that I found myself thinking about too is that with with this sort of like I don't want to call it the fetishizing of the slacker but there is a certain amount of like putting putting this ideology on a pedestal oh, yeah. definitely that mm-hmm. even that has eroded that that is gone and yeah. and we uh you know it's not only materially impossible but it's also sort of culturally frowned upon
1: yeah i mean think about like who makes pop music now right Mm -hmm. like it's you can still find working class people in hip-hop talking about being working class people but Mm -hmm. by and large it's still the the industry is just so much more dominated by people who went to college than it used to be Mm -hmm. um and that's like how are you going to live and be a musician? You know? Um, And so you have like people who went to art school instead of people who, whatever. Although, you know, again, like in George Michael's day in the UK, you could go to art school, be on the dole and um, do all those things and be a working class, you know, Greek Cypriot from wherever actually he was from. I forget. (laughs) Sorry, George. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love George Michael. It's fine. But like the way that that particular thing sort of moves through again from the punks through Mm -hmm. the you know 80s pop to the 90s and grunge to like what do we get in the late 90s we get britney spears and Mm -hmm. free britney but like
3: free britney yeah you know
1: we get this this sort of return of and the spice girls and christina aguilera and and nsync and you know, like, boy bands and and all of that. We get this return to very sort of manufactured, corporatized pop. Mm-hmm. And, like, some of that stuff is fun to listen to, man. I like Britney. But, like, the the change in who controls these industries, right, is so great. And, like, movies, again, right? I'm, I'm not joking, when I'm just like, yeah, everything is Marvel and everything is on mm-hmm. Disney Plus now. Um, and i you know i miss like the peak for me for seeing indie movies was like 2003 to 2005 and i was um i was living in denver for a little while i was working for this little local website that didn't have money to pay me but they got me screening passes to all of the movies at the indie cinema so i saw everything um those are some good years too um Mm -hmm. and like yeah and sort of since then it's all been downhill even like when i lived in new york city for 10 years i'm in london now like although it's a pandemic now so movie theaters are less fun but like i i just feel like so much less drawn to like what's coming out even in so-called indie cinema now right like Mm -hmm. even that and like leave harvey weinstein alone um not because we need to leave him alone because we feel bad for him but just because like we don't have the time,
0: Yep. but yep. like, right? like Miramax episode.
1: goes from being like indie cinema to a major studio. And like, mm-hmm. people call it an indie now is like, it's hilarious. Right. Um, and so that entire sort of these entire apparatuses of cultural production are, are just like closed off more than they have ever really been.
2: This brings up two things that I'm thinking of here. One of which is, um, the conversation happening right now around this HBO documentary about Woodstock ninety nine and thi- and God. one of the one <laughs> I, I watched a little bit of it, but one of one of the things that that drives kind of the narrative crux. Um, I, I will say this about it, it it flattens a lot of the class politics, a lot of the the idea of like the social ennui and a of lot of the, a lot of the yeah. damage of like the nineties bleeding into the early aughts in favor yeah. of something that is like a much more cultural kind of like uh, wedge between more corporatized pop music. It, it even sort of serves almost as like an infomercial for Coachella by the end of it. Um, oh God. <laughs> and, and, and this sort of like countercultural like new metal movement, right? Like, yeah. say what you will about them and their quality, but like more like kind of working class aesthetics and people like Insane Clown Posse or Limp biscuit or Korn. Long corn. live the juggalos. Hey, whoop, whoop.
1: Whoop, <laughs> whoop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, but you know, like th- this is a thing that I was, was standing out to me, right? Is that like they were, they were making this a cultural divide. They were making it like mm-hmm. the way forward of like progressive inclusive music and angry white male music. And I yeah. think there's something else there going on. Right. And there's mm-hmm. actually like a class distinction as you're as you're saying something about yeah. like that commodified, um, highly manufactured kind of pop sensibility and something a little bit messy or something that that appealed to that working class sensibility.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the way that we can only, again, imagine working class as white and male. Right. Because mm-hmm. like what else is happening is hip hop is happening. And like, you exactly. Know, you have. Yep. And even though like there's Oh, there was a really good piece in current affairs um, right now, sort of talking about um, black cultural production and class mm-hmm. that made me think about all of this stuff. And it was sort of talking about like the way that class disappears from conversations around particularly black people in America, because it's just assumed that blackness is poverty is sort of underclassness. And that like the reality of like the class background of a lot of the black people that we, that do get to make culture, um, is that they are more middle class, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, Kanye is the, the prime example, right? But like, yeah. you know, you don't actually, and like, yeah, you just don't have the conversation about sort of class difference happens around white men.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: It doesn't discuss, right? Like, Britney is an interesting case thinking about like the way that she was classed in the media and how the way that she was classed allowed her to be written off as this crazy person.
4: Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Who
1: then can be controlled by her father, which is like the like if I want to explain exploited and alienated labor to anyone, like the case of Britney Spears right now is so mm-hmm. perfect because it's just like right, she is literally being forced to work, denied access to the proceeds of her labor, and when she raises any protest of it, we just you she's just hyster- hystericized, right? Just crazy woman mm-hmm. can't do any of this, but has to keep working. Mm-hmm. Right, she is mentally ill, we are told enough to not be able to control anything, but not mentally ill enough to not be able to do like a however many week long Vegas residency. Yep. And yeah, but like right, like Britney Spears comes from like what people considered like southern white trash, right? Mm-hmm. And that was always sort of present in the way she was covered and discussed um and still is even now, even when it's sort of like vacated out of that, the documentary on her. Um, and yeah, and so like, now I'm just imagining sort of reality bites if like the class positions were reversed,
4: mm-hmm.
1: right? If Lelena was the working class kid, um, if the girl was the slacker, mm-hmm. do we get girl slackers? Are we allowed to be slackers? Yeah. You know, or this was also peak, like, women making their way into the workplace and the girl yeah. boss. This is the beginnings of the girl boss. So, like, Milena mm-hmm. is definitely on her way to being a girl boss if she didn't get fired, right? Yep. Uh, <laughs> and, right, Milena could have ended up Cheryl Sandberg. But, like, I was literally, I literally just going to say that. that. <laughs> I was like, she wrote Lean In, for sure. Yeah, right. And so, like, and she gets derailed by that,
4: mm-hmm. but
1: she still can't quite, like, this is actually kind of the closest we get to the female slacker. hmm Right? Mm-hmm um and it is sustained by her dad's gas card and like the narrative of her film is sort of always there that like there is this project that she's working on that is going to like come to fruition at some point and therefore Mm -hmm. will be right she is the be in a band then be in a band except Uh make a movie yep um yeah i'm trying to think of like are there any other movies where like the girl is the slacker?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I know of any yet. That's an interesting thing but for But you're also making me
1: realize
3: too, Sarah, that like, Lelena is also perpetuating the myth of meritocracy, even oh, in, God, yes. in art, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like that, like, she, in her speech, when she says, if you want to be in a band, be in a band, yes, right. she's saying that to Ethan Hawke's character, but she, right. there is also this assumption that because she has pure, raw, authentic talent, that she will make it, right. that she will find purchase in you know the industry and and be successful and and that I think she too believes that Mm -hmm. right despite the fact that she's disillusioned to a certain extent she there is a sense of entitlement on her part (laughs) that like Yep. I, I am supposed to be good and successful at this thing. So I was I'm valedictorian not, of my college I was class, valedictorian, right? yep. I'm not going to take the gap job. Like I'm yep. going to, I'm going to be a big, like, you know, indie filmmaker. That's, yep. that's what's going to happen because I have talent. Right. And because like, I'm, right. I'm,
1: I've worked hard for it. Yeah. And continuing the gender flip, just like how much of an asshole would the male Elena be? Like we would hate him, oh my right? God. We <laughs> would not be rooting for <laughs> his like cute romantic ending. We would be like, this no. guy needs to die in a fire. We yeah, totally absolutely. This, this guy would be me. like an abusive asshole.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, another There's...
3: another
1: movie idea for you, Sarah. Just,
3: just
4: email, <laughs> yep.
1: mail, okay, email. We the reality weight sequel, and then we do the gender flipped one. And yes, we, but we have him die in a fire. Um, yeah, everything like, old right, imagine, is new again. Imagine the the valence of those scenes where she's berating him. Literally. If he was mm-hmm. saying that to her. Yep. Yep. Like, it would be so different. And I find this so fascinating, because like, obviously, there is something different, but like, it's not as different as we would like to think sometimes like we give. I don't know, like I said, I I find like much less sympathy for her. (laughs) Every rewatch of this movie, I'm like, she's kind of an asshole. Yeah. A little bit.
2: Yeah. And she's, I mean, she's ultimately kind of using the relationship right with Michael to like validate her perception of herself until Mm. it doesn't serve her anymore. Like that's, that's the kind of like crux of this and the pull of these two people. Right. Like it's never about feeling like Michael's a bad guy. It's about realizing that like what he stands for is like her one foot in one foot out of this particular ideal of herself. Yes. Right. Um, what, this is, I think, a, a good lead into the other thing I wanted to bring up, which is yes. which is about meritocracy. Um, and, and this might problematize a little bit for you, Sarah, your perception of Ben Stiller. And I apologize in advance. <laughs> okay. Oh no. Um, what, well, first and foremost, one thing to know about it, too, is he also briefly fired Janine Garofalo from the film. Uh, because he didn't like her attitude at rehearsals until uh, Winona came in and, and then eventually like stood up for her and, and got her back on the production.
3: Oh, and this is the whole landscape we were talking about recently with Linda Fiorentino about difficult women in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which,
2: funnily enough... Janine Garofalo was the first pick for Linda Fiorentino's character, yes. Men in Black. And That's Will right. Smith has gone on record as saying, I wish I picked her instead. He probably would not have been happy with that either. Nothing they means would anything. Have. Nothing oh, means anything. Whatever. Time is a flat <laughs> circle. <laughs> yeah. circle. But the, the thing I want to bring up here is that uh, there was a uh, an internet exchange this week mm. between Ben Stiller and Franklin Leonard, the founder of The Blacklist, which is a, a screenwriting resource um, that mm. is... It, it's been around for a while now, several decades, I think, at least, but it kind of became this sort of internet platform in which emerging screenwriters submitted their scripts, could pay to host them, could pay for like industry people to read them and rate them. And at the end of the year, they put out The Blacklist, which is like the, I believe it's like the 50 best new screenplays that are unproduced or, or like untapped and, and unoptioned. Uh Um, so, so it, it presents itself as sort of this kind of meritocratic process of Mm -hmm. like, if you're good enough, like even without the industry credentials, you can get read and you can get discovered. Mm -hmm. The problem being that like, I have read many of these scripts, um, and all of them without fail come from people who have industry representation, who have management from like, you know, screenwriter stables. Mm -hmm. And most of them are people who already have industry credibility. Like uh, one of the top 10, a few years ago was Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman, uh, which we know like um, she is yeah. She is not exactly an industry outsider. She had a lot of connection. She had a lot of independent wealth. She's an Oxford yeah. grad and she was executive producing Killing Eve alongside Phoebe Waller Bridges. Um, mm-hmm. so, so like these people aren't really like, Outsiders. you know, up and coming emerging artists by any means. There was a post, uh, a, a lot of trade uh, publications like Deadline and Hollywood Reporter uh, Reported on this new short film being directed by Destry Spielberg, Steven Spielberg's daughter. Right. R- written by written by Owen King, Stephen King's son. God. And starring.
1: See? <laughs> and <laughs> and star. It, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And starring Hopper penn Sean penn's son.
1: <laughs> Wait, he named his kid Hopper.
2: His son's name is Hopper. Yeah. It's
1: terrible. Yeah. Sorry, Dennis he, Hopper, but that's awful.
2: He's a big fan of (laughs) Kevin Spacey's character in A Bug's Life.
1: Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay.
2: Anyway, so Franklin Leonard, the the founder of The Blacklist, kind of made like a a snarky tweet about this and said, oh, Hollywood's a meritocracy, right? And who should get in his mentions besides one Ben Stiller? Ben
1: Stiller. Who
2: we should note is the son of Anne Merla and Jerry Stiller to... Very well known, very prominent and prolific performers in Hollywood and on the right. stage.
3: His mom is in the movie. His
2: mother is in this movie. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> she she briefly shows up. Um, but but Ben Stiller basically says like you know people who are working and creating all have their own path. And you should just be wishing them the best. Mm. And Franklin Leonard kind of responds and says, I do, you know, without fail. But we can't keep perpetuating this myth of Hollywood as a meritocracy when we see stuff like this, especially when it's a short film that somehow warranted trade reporting, despite the fact that, like, this kind of thing wouldn't normally be reported on. And Ben Stiller's responses are peak, like neoliberal, uh, peak capitalist realism, Mm. I think here. Uh, and he says, would just they speaking, have
1: come out of the mouth of Michael?
2: They would have they, maybe come out of the mouth of Michael. would have. And he says, just speaking from experience, and I don't know <sighs> any of them, I would bet that they have all faced challenges. Different than those with no access to the industry, showbiz, as we all know, is pretty rough and ultimately is a meritocracy.
4: <laughs> Franklin
2: Leonard says, nope, I, 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 I doubt that. I don't believe you. And uh, you know, there's no diversity here as well. Like we have to talk about the fact that, like, the C-suite of Hollywood is something that is like less diverse than like the Trump cabinet. And Ben Stiller's final response here is is a, is a good one, where he says, "100% agree with you. Diversity is a much bigger issue, no question. And I see your point. Access is access. So yes, I'm saying that untalented people." don't really last if they get a break because of who they are or know or are related to. And basically what? says that like,
1: listeners cannot see my face right now, but you all can.
2: <laughs> yes. It, 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 uh, it, it boggles the mind a, a little face. bit. And, and what it's he's, yeah. so what he's essentially saying here is, is um, even if you have access, even if you're somebody's kid, even if you're, you know, like already in the door, you won't last long if you don't actually have talent, which we know is not the case, Michael.
3: Like, yeah. Michael.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: um, but yeah. I just it, like like as always happens like, on our show
1: suits and cars and I yeah, want a like, like, big house. <laughs> I just want like a nice house. Just want a nice. And I would house. like work even if I didn't have to. Yes. Yeah.
2: Anyway, oh, <laughs> full circle. People, people were quick to point out the irony, of course, and uh, you know, obviously, there is like the fact that it's like, how do we know that any of these people are talented besides the fact that they are. Stephen King and Steven Spielberg and Sean Penn's children and Ben Stiller, right? Yeah, and you know it's like, friend Leibowitz has a really great quote on it that got shared around where uh, she was just like everyone talks about this difference between like talent and access as it pertains to show business and Hollywood. The access is is it like that is all that it is. It's just about being in the door. It's just about being yeah. in the room already. That is that is yeah. all that any of this is. There is no talent here, you know. It's just like or or, or merit of that talent. Right. Um, anyway, as always happens on the show, like there's something that happens in real life, like in the news or or uh, <laughs> you know, like on on the internet. That's just like it happens right at the same time that we're talking about or or homing in on.
0: Famous the creations should not of, be on
2: Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, or they actually. should,
3: and we should all just like spend our time deriding everything yeah. that comes out of their
1: mouth. Fair.
2: Um, that about does it for everything I want to cover with the movie. But Sarah, I do want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit more about your book, its impetus, <laughs> and and convince those who haven't read it yet to read it because uh, both of us have, and and uh, firmly stand in the position of you you one hundred percent should. It's it's terrific.
1: Thanks. Um, I feel like I've actually sort of plugged it in a lot of ways organically <laughs> while we were talking sort of to the point of like talking about like fight f- fidgeting about like what is my conclusion going to be in this book mm-hmm. because it, it does sort of end up coming down on the like actually work won't love you back, but other people will. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a reported book on... Um, 10 different kinds of work that will not love you back because spoiler alert, no work will love you back. And the ways that we get sold myths around this kind of work and um, then the realities of that. So it's also kind of a history of neoliberalism through working class people, um, which Sounds pretentious, but I don't care. It's true. Um, And because I'm a girl and my book has the word love in the title, nobody thinks of it in terms of like a big political book. And everybody just asked me for like personal advice. And I was like, no, really, I'm making a political case that like neoliberalism rests on the idea that it can convince us all that we can find our meaning through wage labor.
3: Literally how it survives.
1: Yeah. Yeah, It, it compels us to do this, even as like the reality of work is that, as we've been saying this entire time, it's getting worse. For Mm -hmm. pretty much everybody, unless you're Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos Mm -hmm. doesn't really work. He just accumulates capital (laughs) and goes to space. And And goes to space. Oh, and
2: one of our last episodes was about all of this. No, he
3: just sort of falls from the atmosphere on his way down. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) By any means. um, Uh, So anyway, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Uh, The book, again, is Work Won't Love You Back. How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. The movie is Reality Bites. And our guest today has been the inimitable Sarah Jaffe. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being on the show. We really, really appreciate you being here.
1: Thank you. This was really fun.
2: As always, you can uh, follow us at Hit Factory Pod. That's on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, subscribe at Patreon.com/slash/HitFactoryPod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda, and we <laughs> will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.
0: i